Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! From the third floor of the H.C. building, it's Election Shock Therapy. We're Whoa, back. We're in the I'm in space. the library. I'm in the <laughs> makerspace. I'm in the combination makerspace and library. Did you just write that song? Were you about to say no? <laughs> do you do you remember that song from a few years ago, the the Pizza Hut Taco Bell song? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I was trying to do a very uh, outdated <laughs> reference call out. Anyway, I'm Chris Moore, and joining me in the Bethel University Library's makerspace Is are Sam Mulberry, Andy Bramson, and Mitchell Crum. And Mitch is fast typing away his computer, trying to defeat a login. Um, but we're here. <laughs> He's pointing to sort of poor man's Nate Silver. So, there. so, so the, qu- the question is: is the uh, is the login the end boss, or is there something after the login he needs there, to do? There, there is like a there's a bonus final boss after okay. the login yeah, yeah, called yeah. called uh, <laughs> secondary authentication. <laughs> so, we're, so welcome to welcome to our internet security podcast. <laughs> Which, so what are we talking to about today, something Chris? Live online. Um, we're talking about um, power for power's sake today. Um, and uh, because I'm teaching a class this fall called Food Politics, I think a lot about food um, in an academic sense. And so one of the one of the hot things to do in, in cuisine right now is to serve the same dish in multiple kinds of ways. So. Hmm. Um, uh, at Major Domo, uh, Dave Chang's restaurant out in L.A., he does a thing called boiled chicken two ways. Right, so he, he prepares the same chicken, but then you get it with two different, prep- completely different preparations. Okay. You're supposed to change how you see something. Can I call you out here? You've never been to this restaurant. No, not even a little bit. Okay. I can't afford that kind of stuff. Right, but but you're talking about it as if this is like a thing. Because <laughs> I've do. listened to him talk about. It. I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I just, academic I just, food, <laughs> Sam. Not I just want food. the listeners to know that this is not this is not the life you live. This is not the life. No, it, it's it's the life I would aspire to. That's right. <laughs> um, Robin Leach might be gone, but his spirit lives on. That's right. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, so, so caviar dreams and, and champagne nights. But um, we, we want to talk about power for power's sake, and we want to do it in three brief acts. Now I sound like Ira Glass. That's right. That <laughs> works. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, first uh, um, on the docket, um, being led by Mitch, is yeah. we're going to look at um, some, uh, re- some recent polling data. <laughs> which Mitch is desperately trying it. to log oh, no, into. I got it. I got he got um, it. He got it. Talking about um, evangelicals and their accommodations uh, with the American political process. Yeah. Uh, second, um, Andy's going to talk about um, uh, the the uh, the electoral system itself and the political party system and the raw pursuit of governing power. We'll talk a little bit about the midterm mm-hmm. elections there, mm-hmm. which are coming hot on our heels. Two and then, away. and then, if there's time, and if they'll let me, I want to talk about international politics, and I'll talk about the uh, Khashoggi affair uh, with Saudi Arabia, Turkey, the United States, and um, what it means to have power for power's sake. Before we do that, though, I've got a question for Sam. Yeah, am I right that this is our fiftieth? This is this is number this 50. is number fifty, isn't yeah. it? This is our big one. Nice. We've been going at this for over two years now. And 
So the, the half century. Mark. Can we replace our normal theme music with like Fifty Cent's uh, "Get Rich or Die Trying" or something <laughs> like that? No, but I actually have something <laughs> special for you for the fiftieth uh, episode. I hope it's not a clip show. I don't no, want clip. Yeah. right. Guess what I have to say right now. What's that? I have a meeting, so I have <laughs> to go. That's nice. not really special, exactly. That's it's actually fairly normal, right? I think that's happened on 43 it's, it's of our episodes. It's a 50th anniversary <laughs> meeting. <laughs> so I'm going to slowly fade myself. Okay. He's Sam, faded. I'd also like to point out to you that he has a really cool mixing board that we're now using for one of our first times. Which he's so super excited hopefully about. Hopefully the sound quality of this podcast is just a wee bit better. Just a bit better than episode one. Andy, I have a question for you. Yes. Uh, while Mitch is finalizing whatever oh, login no, he's, he's doing. He's done his hacking over there. He's, he's set. Um, Andy, a uh, million dollars. You get a million dollars. Oh, dear. It's a lot of money, oh dear. right? Yes, it is. It's, um, but you are always two weeks away from a uh, midterm election. You never re- It's like Zeno's paradox. <laughs> you n- it, you're always two weeks away from, from a midterm, and you never reach it. Oh, man. That sounds painful. <laughs> Would you do it for a million dollars? Oh, I'm very curious what the governing of the country looks like, but sure, I'll just do it. Well, that's the thing, right? You're always just right. Like, <laughs> politics is basically yeah. come to a standstill because it's everyone's campaigning for the. Midterms. You know, the country should probably pay me to not do that. They should probably pay me more than a million dollars. So you, so, so essentially, you take the million to make this happen, and then somehow, like, you don't have control over this. If you yeah. take the money, then it's then it's it just it's happens. on. It just, it just happens. happens. The country's ruined. So no, I can't. You're take like the money. you're in Brigadoon. You're it's just wrong. perpetually it's just wrong. awaiting the midterms. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bad idea. Okay. <laughs> All right, so you're not taking the money. No, nope, no. Nope. Mitch, are you ready to talk about yeah, some, some recent polling data? All right, good deal. All right, All right. Uh, poor man's Nate Silver. <laughs> I, I am definitely the poor man's Nate Silver. Because, you know, Nate sits yeah. there on his little computer and right. you know, typing yeah, away. Yeah, and yeah. He, you know, if you watch them doing their podcasts, which you can do, um, they all like have their little laptops right, right. and doing their stuff. Yeah, and, no. and, and can I just say, as a um, although we have done some things on video, um, you don't need to see us on video doing <laughs> you podcasts. You really don't. <laughs> you don't really need to see Nate Silver on video doing podcasts. No, not so much. Yeah. But it is a thing. There's a reason right. this was designed to be a recorded yeah. medium. That's right. That's right. All right. So the, well, at least we, Sam never has to bleep us. So <laughs> that definitely happens on that show. Give it time. Yes, that's oh right. wow. No, yeah. I'm kidding. How bad is this selection going to get? This is, election, this is election shock <laughs> therapy, not election sh- election shock trauma. Um, <laughs> all right. So the reason yeah, we yeah, wanted you, uh, Mitch to talk about this is that we got some a pretty interesting, pretty wide ranging poll about evangelical attitudes and uh, poli- and politics and power. Right. And so we wanted you to talk about this and digest this a little bit yep. and give us some political science insight to what to make of these, this polling data. Absolutely. So uh, Christianity Today. Uh, uh, basically published an article uh, earlier this week that was uh, headlined uh, let me get that actually let me get the headline right here so it says why evangelicals voted Trump and then debunking the 81 percent and essentially what they're referring to when they talk about debunking the 81 percent is this narrative that essentially evangelicals uh, overwhelmingly voted for Trump and therefore this shows that evangelical Christians and, uh, and when I say evangelical Christians I guess I should pause for a second and say this is particularly white evangelical Christians so Correct. if you break this down by race uh, this doesn't look uh, it looks very different um, mm-hmm. and if you but if you're looking at white evangelical Christians 81% of them voted for Trump and therefore this shows that they have essentially sort of bought into Trump's politics Trump's uh, positions lock stock and barrel that basically mm-hmm. uh, there's no you know there's very little daylight between evangelical you know white white evangelical voters and Trump's agenda and essentially what uh, um, the folks at Christianity Today um, basically Ed Stetzer and Andrew McDonald are wanting to argue in this and they say you know fairly forcefully in their opening to this is that they they think that the, that this data um, which was gathered by 
um, let's see, the Billy Graham Center and uh, Wheaton College and Lifeway Research, um, uh, essentially shows that that's false, right? Mm-hmm. So they, so they mm-hmm. basically, this is a poll of uh, a little over 3,000 people, and they were specifically targeting um, evangelicals and non-evangelicals. So basically their sample has uh, basically a blend of uh, evangelicals and then at least a thousand uh, um, I, uh, I don't have that, that, that number right in front of me but it's at least a thousand respondents who are not evangelical and so they were specifically trying to get a comparison between evangelicals mm-hmm. and people who are not evangelical and if I can interject just real briefly uh, yeah. for statistical purposes that's, that technique is known as oversampling right. so rather than taking 3,000 random respondents to a survey mm-hmm. they're um, looking for people who fit certain categories and oversampling those categories to get a statistically reliable result from those categories Yep. Right. And as long as they randomly sampled, I mean, that's a very nice large sample that yes. should be pretty reliable. So I think, you know, our quibble is not going to be with that. Piece. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So as, as far as, you know, uh, you know, gl- looking over their methods and everything else, it looks re- as solid as any kind of <laughs> um, survey, survey sure. research goes. So mm-hmm. um, so essentially so that part looks good. What where where the quibbles come in is with their interpretation of this data. Uh, so essentially, what they, what, what what Stetzer and McDonald are wanting to argue is that um, is 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 basically that this shows that 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 narrative that's been drawn of evangelicals being closely aligned with Trump and mm-hmm. essentially buying into his agenda is just false, right? And that's why even in the headline they say this is debunking the eighty-one percent. So mm-hmm. it's trying to debunk that right. that that uh, narrative that everyone is sort of fully on board. And as they go through, I mean, they have some fairly strong statements early on, but. Um, when I started looking at this, I was pretty intrigued because essentially, of course, this has been something that's been floating for a long time. And so I started looking through it and I was pretty immediately struck, even with their own charts and, inter- and you know, basically pre- presentations of this data. It doesn't seem to completely support that hypothesis. No. Mm. And so that's basically, you know, so, for example, I mean, just to sort of uh, kick things off, one of the things that they want to look at is. Is, uh, is essentially to say, well, how moral are evangelicals when they go to evaluate candidates, right? What, how, uh, and, and when I say moral, I mean how much do sort of moral calculations inform their, right. their vote choice? Mm-hmm. As opposed to economic calculations. Exactly. Or, or security calculations. Right. Yeah. Or, or, and, so, and so essentially, you know, if we think about moral issues, we might, you know, at the top of the list, we would, of course, immediately think about things like abortion, right? And so being sure. pro-life, right? That's sort of the... the or issues maybe, of sexuality. Or issues of sexuality, right? Those are sort of the, you know, moral issues that people sort of immediately think about. And right. following from that, we also might think about candidate character. We might think about who is, right. who is this person? Is this person actually living a moral life? Are they, are right. they a good person? And what they essentially found uh, was that when, when, when asked what is the most important uh, thing uh, for you, uh, evangelicals overwhelmingly listed the economy as the most important issue. Mm-hmm. So basically, can this can this candidate uh, help help my bottom line? You might say, okay, well, fine. So the economy is people's first choice. Well, what's the next thing that, uh, that's that's there? And the next one is healthcare. Um, and interestingly, on healthcare, evangelicals in general care more about this. Trump voters actually didn't. So Trump voters uh, were only six hmm. percent of Trump voters actually said this was the most important issue to them, versus eleven percent of evangelicals overall. And that's still white evangelicals we're talking about there. Um, or is that actually? I, yeah, uh, no. This, this, this is evangelicals overall. So this okay. is so they don't have this part broken down by okay. race. Which which throughout this, in some ways, so just. That's, it's a little that's a critique there. we could come yeah. back to later. Is that mm-hmm. in many ways, and this is one critique that, um, that that I think is pretty strong on this, is actually 
this poll in some ways makes white evangelicals look better, but that's primarily because they've lumped in. Um, they've conflated They've conflated evangelicals, right? right? And right. so once you break this down by race, it actually looks even worse for yeah. white evangelicals. Okay, so, but even, even with the best case scenario, we're just talking about evangelicals. We're not talking right. about, we're right. not breaking this down by race. Um, the economy's first, and then from there you have health care. Mm-hmm. Then you have, and this is probably one of the, one of the killers, I think, then you have immigration. Mm-hmm. Right. So basically mm-hmm. the candidate's mm-hmm. position on immigration and particularly for Trump voters, this is a big one. Right. Um, and right. so right off the bat. Right. I mean, Trump's position on immigration is um, at best problematic with evangelical ethics. Right. So while it's while while, while right. it's very clear to say that, you know, evangelicals certainly don't have to stand for something in terms of like open borders. They don't for have sure. to, you know, they can definitely take a, st- you know, hold, hold an ethical position and say that it's important to, uh, you know, basically try to keep out criminals and all these mm-hmm. sorts of things that we might think about with borders. Trump has gone well beyond uh, what m- most evangelical leaders would say is an ethical and moral position. In fact, a, a pretty substantial number of evangelicals, for example, in the, with the family separation policy, evangelical leaders came out and said this was an immoral policy. And yet when we look at evangelical voters, Trump's uh, positions on immigration seem to be one of the things that sold them. Right. So if we go a little bit further, then we can say, okay, ability to uh, the fourth one then is ability to maintain national security. Mm-hmm. So again, we're still not talking about something that can easily be called moral. Right. Uh, we go to the fifth one here and we say, we finally get to one, and that is personal character. Now this is one where I think race actually probably, and I don't have the breakdown by race on this one, but I think that race would probably be a big deal because only 3% of evangelical Trump voters actually said this was important versus right. 7% of uh, evangelicals in general. Mm-hmm. So, and then, what, what, and, 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 then, and then to make this sort of really bad, non-evangelicals listed personal character as the most important 13% of the time. Mm-hmm. So essentially, if you are an evangelical Trump voter, you are substantially less likely to be making a moral calculation on this on this issue, right? So morals yeah. are actually, so in other words, being an evangelical makes it much yeah. less likely that you yeah. are thinking morally. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then we can push a little bit further. We can go past moral character here, and we can say ability to help uh, those in need. And when we look at ability to help those in need, evangelicals in general are at 7%, say this is the most mm-hmm. important issue. Only 2% of Trump voters say this is the most important issue. Mm-hmm. Non-evangelicals, 8%. <laughs> Yeah. So when we look at this, once again, we see, uh, you know, basically not being an evangelical makes you, uh, you know, in this sense, you know, a better, a better person, a more moral person in this. Okay, we're finally down to the seventh issue. The seventh issue uh, is likely Supreme Court nominees. So 10% of Trump voters said this was the most important issue to them, was, okay. the, was the Supreme Court. And mm-hmm. we can argue, right, and this is where things get a little bit fuzzy. That's arguably, you can say, well, that's the moral issue. That's abortion, right, sexuality, right. et cetera. So, right, right. And so, you know, you can sort of make a case that, well, maybe that one deserves to be, to be up there. It's a proxy for It's a proxy issues. for a lot of things, yeah. absolutely. Um, and then it's not until you get down to, and I believe that I think we're on number eight here, that you finally get to position on abortion um, as, being, as being an important yeah. issue. Um, and then from there, uh, you know, basically you have promises on taxes, presidential running mate, and those are all very vanishing, you know, approaching vanishingly small in terms of right. their importance. Right. But the, the key thing to look at, and I think, I think sort of the key takeaway here is you have to go pretty far down this list to mm-hmm. arrive at something mm-hmm. where evangelicals are saying this is a moral issue and this is really important. This is the most important thing determining my vote. Right. And right at the top of the list for, uh, most e- for most evangelicals are things that have nothing, to, you know, that really aren't at their core yeah. moral issues in that sense, right? We're right. talking about things like the economy, uh, you know, national security, things like that. Right. Border security. 
Right, and so, and in fact, I think what's most disturbing, you know, just again, to look at that part of the data is when you then look at moral issues, a lot of moral issues, evangelicals are, are actually worse than the non-evangelicals, right? Mm -hmm. Basically, they're less likely to prioritize the moral issues here. And then if we go a little bit further, right, um, one of the other ones that I uh, was looking at that I think is particularly problematic um, for evangelicals uh, are things like, uh, they basically one of the questions that they asked is, to what extent do you agree with the following statement? And here's the statement. I am disturbed by Trump's comments about minorities. All right, mm -hmm. so essentially when we look at this question, what they're getting at is things like Trump saying that, uh, you know, things like that he didn't think a Mexican judge mm -hmm. could give him a fair trial. Right. Um, or, you know, essentially, uh, yeah, I mean, you could go down the line. He said a lot of stuff. So anyway, <laughs> when we look at... <laughs> yeah, let's not go down um, that rabbit trail. Yeah. So anyway, when we look at, when we look at uh, this, this question, 48% um, of non-evangelicals strongly agreed that they were... So this was... This was 48 sorry, yeah, forty-eight percent. Forty-eight percent of non-evangelicals strongly agreed that this was uh, that they that they were disturbed, and then another eighteen percent somewhat agreed, and then you can go and then basically there's two categories of disagree, which are only eleven percent and fifteen percent respectively. Okay. Okay. For evangelicals, <coughs> only thirty-eight percent said that they strongly agreed that they were disturbed, so that's significantly less. And then seventeen mm -hmm. percent uh, said that they somewhat agreed, and then fourteen and twenty-one percent. So well over uh, non-evangelicals said that they disagreed. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at this, right, essentially what this is showing is that in terms of, you know, worrying about, um, you know, es essentially racist comments, being an evangelical makes you less likely to care about racism <laughs> is essentially, or at least less likely to, um, you know, feel, feel, feel disturbed about Trump's, you know, disturbingly <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. race, race and, and importantly, less willing to admit that you're disturbed by it to a pollster. Exactly. To whom you're talking. Yeah, well, and I, and I would turn this around a little bit. I mean, I think because I think what the it's really saying, and this is and this does go counter to the narrative that the, the story in Christianity Day wants to lay out, is it, it, it what it does, that this data does fit with is another argument we, I saw recently in research, and I can't remember the name of the researchers, um, but, you know, they were saying basically that your party affiliation is shaping kind of your your sense of moral values um, more than the other way around. And so that yeah. we as, you know, Christians in the general in this country, but evangelicals in particular, uh, I think this is true, um, there's this sense in which their their politi politics are being shaped by the party they've chosen to affiliate with, um, not the other way around. And so when we look at that data, I mean, what we're seeing is more, you know, if you're a Democrat, you're going to talk more about racial issues. You're going to talk more about sort of social welfare programs. Um, if you're a Republican, you're going to talk more about sort of the problems of immigration. You're going to talk about particular kinds of economic policies, right? And and so that is then shaping what these voters perceive mm -hmm. as important. And the other thing is, I mean, like on the, the kind of Trump comments, I mean, in some ways all that's getting at is, is this person from my tribe, right? And if that person's right. from my tribe, right. then I'm going to try to find a way to affirm that person. I'm actually in some ways surprised that the criticism was as high as it was among evangelicals, yeah. actually, given that 81% did vote for him, right? Um, in some ways, that, that is actually somewhat encouraging because it shows there's some people who voted for him who can still sort of see this is problematic, but I still felt like this was the best of a bad yeah. list of options, right? But it, it, it seems to really, to me, reinforce that narrative. I mean, like, you know, the politics and the, our particular political affiliation is driving our kind of moral identity more than the other way around. That right. we're not able to sort of step back outside of that partisan identity and really see, and, and maybe we can see it to some extent, but we don't act on the consequences of what we see, yeah. if, we, if we can even see it. 
Yeah. The one, other, the only other thing, just to note, and I think I think all of that is probably true. Uh, um, the only other thing to note about this, though, is that once again we have this issue here of conflation of, of races here. Right. Mm -hmm. And so yep. when we're talking about this, the people who are disturbed, and this is. Um, Actually, I'm, I, I can't be Nate Silver here and call this up fast enough <laughs> for this moment, right? But basically, once you break this down by race, this actually becomes worse um, mm -hmm. because essentially right. white evangelicals are substantially less likely to, have s to say that they were disturbed by Trump's comments. And of course, uh, you know, basically African-American and Hispanic evangelicals are much more likely to say right. that they were disturbed. And so this number in some ways is making evangelicals, even though, mm -hmm. it, ma even though mm -hmm. it makes them look bad, it's actually helping them look better than, if at least for white evangelicals, than they actually are. Right. Um, Which is, again, the parties, right? I mean, like, right. white evangelicals yep. are likely to be Republicans in general, and, um, you know, African-American evangelicals are overwhelmingly likely to be Democrats. Hispanic evangelicals are pretty likely to be Democrats. So. Mm. Although that could be shifting. That could be shifting a little bit. The Hispanic vote is... Yeah. is Harder to nail down, especially yep. particular yeah. subgroups. Yeah, it's squishy. Um, the only other th so there there are other things I could talk about. I just want to note one other one here though. Before Please, <laughs> then I have a big uh, I have a big I, big picture question for you guys. Yeah. Okay. So the other one here is so th this is once again um, to, this is this is the to what extent do you agree question. So mm -hmm. uh, to what extent do you agree with the following statement? I should support my favored leader even uh, when they say or do things I disagree with. So this kind of mm -hmm. gets to Andy's point mm -hmm. here yep. just a second ago, right? And so. Um, for non-evangelicals, only 6% strongly agreed and 21% mm. somewhat agreed. Interesting. Right? So if you're okay. not an evangelical, you are very unlikely to say this, right? And so well over, uh, in fact, uh, over 60% of people disagreed with this, with this statement. Right. Okay. So for evangelicals, 18% strongly agreed and 25% somewhat agreed, right? Wow. So we're approaching, you know, a uh, little over 40% there, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, basically said that, yes, I should support them even when they say and do things that I disagree with. Um, and then roughly 50% disagreed. So, um, but again, that's well uh, under the over 60% of non-evangelicals who agreed. So essentially what this is showing yeah. is yep. that being an evangelical makes you much more likely to essentially excuse, you know, bad behavior, bad statements, and things like that on the right. part of on the part of your leader. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, all that is to say, right, uh, and there are other things in here. I mean, one of the more disturbing ones was that uh, around a little over 40% of people said that they definitely felt that it was harder to share their faith uh, in the post-Trump world, which essentially means that, you know, if you are, a, you know, if, if being an evangelical means that there is something to, um, you know, that evangelism in, in some sense is important, that means that, in you know, most evangelicals feel that in the post-Trump world, that core aspect of being an evangelical has been damaged um, mm -hmm. to some degree. Um, and, uh, you know, so that, that in itself is disturbing. There are other things in here that we could look at, but essentially I think the takeaway from this is that the data does not sort of give us this rosy debunking uh, thing, right, even in, their own, even in their own data. And at times what's odd about this article even is they will kind of come to it and say, well, this doesn't look very good. <laughs> And yeah. and then maybe try to offer some kind of thing, but it's like you know if, if you're going to come out with this strong headline to say this debunks right. the 81 percent, and then your data doesn't particularly do that. <laughs> it's not 81 percent. Yeah. It's 89. It's worse. Right. It's, <laughs> it's much really worse. Yeah. In many cases, especially because they don't yeah. break it down by race in these charts, and yeah. then once you look at it broken down by race, it actually you know becomes uh, you know worse. So I mean, yeah. once you once you sort of accounted for that. It really doesn't feel very good for white no. evangelicals. No. It does actually, in fact, seem to corroborate more than uh, you know undermine this this narrative that white evangelicals are very much on board. They right. and, and essentially just going back to sort of the the the, um, the top issues and sort of thinking about yeah. what are the most important issues and. Uh, 
And by the way, this doesn't get much better when you sort of start asking people, what are your top three or four issues too? They also yeah. look at that data. And yeah. once again, the moral issues are way down the list and sometimes don't even get a mention. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so once you, know, once, once you sort of look at that, it really it does become the case that you say, well, wh what are Trump's selling points? Well, his selling points were, I can fix the economy, I can, you know, I'm gonna be there for national security and just ignore all these moral issues, these character mm -hmm. issues, mm -hmm. these other things. And you know, to the extent that then, you know, the, the narrative then becomes, well, evangelicals bought into that. This data seems to say, yeah, for a significant number of white evangelicals, that's true. They mm -hmm. basically have mm -hmm. sort of decided these moral issues don't matter. Character doesn't matter. Um, the core issues about being pro-life or, you know, issues of sexuality don't really matter. You know, family issues don't matter that much. What really matters is how is this going to help me uh, in the moment? And, uh, you, know, mor you know, morality, who cares? I yeah, mean, I don't know if I go quite that far. I mean, I, because I think the the Supreme Court thing is, um, I mean, there's enough going on there, right? That that mattered at least to a segment of the population. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, and so, I mean, but I think w what I would say is kind of the if there's a meta narrative in here, it's you know you vote for Trump out of fear, right? I mean, fear of where the mm -hmm. economy is going, right? And so you, you feel like you need to you know keep more of your money, or and he, he's promising to do that. You fear of sort of the problem of know, perceived problem of immigration, of pe too many people coming to the country, which is, I mean, in many ways misleading because, I mean, you know, you, you get the impression, think, listening to people, that Obama was just sort of letting people pour into this country, and, and when you look at the data, that's actually not even close to correct. Um, yeah, he he had a very more, restrictive. He deported more people than any. Yeah, he deported before. more people than any other president. He had a very restrictive immigration policy. It was only in the last year that he kind of opened up the numbers for, you know, perhaps some very political reasons. But anyway, um, you know, and and then you know, there's that that fear of cultural change. I think, and I think that that's where the I think the court nominees do come in, um, because I think they're they're afraid of you know, like I mean, being being forced into particular things, right? Um, just be you know, like the LGBTQ kind of uh, issues. Um, things like that, but so I, th I think I, I agree to some extent that I mean they don't seem to be nearly as driven by moral issues as we'd expect. They seem to be driven by very similar issues to other voters. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think there's this sort of underlying narrative of we're afraid of the changes, and Trump is a big tough guy who can maybe stop that. Right? Okay, so I kind of want to follow up on that then, and if you'll forgive me, I'm going to I'm going to try and uh, beat an, an analogy into the ground here. So I started <laughs> I started talking about um, food and three courses here. Sure. So this course I think. Is a chicken omelet. Let me explain. Oh boy, um, <laughs> sounds terrible. A chicken omelet is the cr is the cruelest food. It's the cruelest mm. food because you take the eggs out of the chicken, you kill the chicken, you put the chicken back into the eggs, you cook them. Right? I mean, like this is Man, this okay. is like a multi generational wow. homicide. Um, it uh, sounds like something that ought to violate Old Testament law. I'm, like I'm, you I'm, shall I'm, not boil a yeah, kid in its mother's kid milk. Kid in its mother's right? right? Yeah. This, yeah well, you should not make an omelet in the, uh, in the eggs that you pull from the chicken. Yeah. Um, so here's why here's why I say that. We, what we're, we're faced with here is a chicken and egg kind of problem. Um, <laughs> and I'm serious about that. <laughs> and we're going to kill them both. Well, maybe. <laughs> because if you, could look at, if you look at this data, you say it seems certain, it seems, certainly seems like uh, evangelicals have sold themselves out to Donald mm -hmm. Trump's agenda. Maybe as Professor Bramson is saying, for fear. Mm -hmm. But they've adopted essentially economic policies, security policies, immigration yep. policies, well over moral policies mm -hmm. in ways mm -hmm. evangelicals traditionally have not been associated with any of those things. Mm -hmm. um, and it, was, it seems like it's just, well, this is, to use the psychology term, this is just motivated reasoning. Mm -hmm. These evangelicals mm -hmm. voted for Donald Trump, and now, two years later, they are retrospectively trying to make sense of why they did it. 
And so they say, well, of course I support these things because that's why I voted for this guy. But in mm-hmm. reality, they voted for the person and then figured out why they supported them later. Right. That's the chicken side. Mm-hmm. The egg side is, well, what did Donald Trump do in the first place to, to, co- to capture these voters? So on the one hand, you've got uh, people like John Fee and critics of sort of what he called what Fee calls core evangelicals, right? Yeah. Sort of uh, major evangelical leaders who aligned themselves with the president for the raw pursuit of power and brought along uh, substantial portions of evangelicals with them. Evangelicals went along for pursuit of power, political influence as well, and then later on came around to what they actually believed. Mm-hmm. But the alternative is that Donald Trump had to do something, had to be a first mover at some point to begin to capture evangelicals in the first place. Right. And so he didn't just, is it is it the case that evangelicals just decided this is our guy? Or is it the case that he actually was saying something that appealed to them in the first place? And those things that he was saying were things about race, about nationalism, about, I don't know if you saw this or not, but in a speech last night, he explicitly said, you're not supposed to say you're a nationalist. Well, guess what? I'm a nationalist. And the crowd right. cheers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so like this is, uh, I, is it, which, which is it? Is it the chicken or the egg? Is it that Donald Trump is appealing to evangelicals and they went to him? Or is it the evangelicals went to him and then made up their minds about what they liked about him afterwards? And I actually think it's a chicken omelet. I think this is there's something kind of really uh, synergistic about mm-hmm. the way that they pulled the, the way that this happened. This this marriage of convenience for power's sake. Hmm. I'm not quite sure how to jump into this analogy, but <laughs> but maybe can I go with the rooster? Um, maybe it's the rooster that's actually driving this, right? So, and what I mean by that is, is it is it that Trump appealed to them as such, or that they they are now sort of subscribing to Trump, or is it just that? Trump happened to be the guy that their party put forward, right? I mean, because what you've got in in my lifetime, right, in our lifetime, um, in the last, you know, four going on four decades now, is that white evangelicals have become increasingly affiliated with the Republican Party, and they started mm-hmm. that started through the kind of yep. the moral majority movement in the '80s with Falwell um, yep. and Pat Robertson and people like that, right? But it's you know they become so tied to the party, um, and then not only that, right? So you have that that kind of affiliation that you know the party's shaping who they are politically and how they think politically and which issues are important because you listen to them and say, well, apparently those are the key issues because they're talking a lot about immigration. They're talking about what a terrible president Barack Obama is, right? Um, and then on top of that, of course, the Democratic Party goes and nominates, you know, if not public enemy number one, certainly public enemy in the top five, right? I mean, Hillary Clinton, who they've been opposing for a quarter century, right, um, mm-hmm. as somebody who is going to try to change our health care, who is a radical, you know, radical feminist, the, radical pro-abortion, the, radical The narrative whatever. was certainly highly salient. That was the narrative on her. And, and so, you know, it's you have to defeat her. And I think you do see some of that in this data, too, right, where— yeah. You know, there's certainly a, you know, not a majority, but a substantial portion of the people who are saying I'm more voting against Hillary Clinton than I am sort of casting a positive vote. For Can I ask Donald you a Trump. question about that then, Andy, to follow up? Imagine an alternate alternate history where um, Republicans hadn't nominated Donald Trump. Instead, they nominated a very moderate version of, let's say, Ben Carson. So there is no, that's not that's not a real yeah. person, but like okay. like I, I'm kind of thinking like J.C. Watts from a previous era or something like it's not that. Not really moderate, but no, sure. Okay. All right, I'm just but I'm yeah. thinking um, less inflammatory. Uh, a a, fair, a a reasonably moderate or like okay, John Kasich. Sure, yeah, John Kasich is good. Yeah. Um, would evangelicals have moved in a more moderate direction on these issues to mirror their presidential candidate? Yes, I think they. I mean, I think so they they're, the, they're the malleable part. The presidential candidates are firm. 
or, um, or anchors and the evangelical voters are the malleable. They, there might have been some talk about how Kasich was a little squishy, which is weird because Kasich's actually quite conservative, but Very he had moderate in tone, right, um, compared to, say, Donald yep. Trump, right? And um, there might have been some concerns about that. I think they, they unite behind Kasich because he's, again, not Hillary Clinton. He, mm -hmm. is, he does check the basic boxes. Um, and so I don't think, for example, um, that the wall was like this huge selling point for evangelicals. I think once, once you know, you get Donald Trump, then you find ways to try to justify why we need the wall mm -hmm. and what good that might do. But I don't think, you know, that in any way precludes people from voting for a John Kasich or a Marco Rubio, um, who might have, you know, otherwise won the so nomination. So, if that's the case, and if if evangelical voters would kind of mold themselves to whatever the party ideology represented by the presidential candidate mm -hmm. is. Are, do the evangelicals stand for anything? They stand for anything in the political world other than capture of power by Republican candidates. Well, that, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think what that gets at is this question of how much could the Republican Party move away from the issues that drew them in the first place before they would rebel, right? In other words, can the Republican Party nominate a pro-choice candidate? John Donald Trump is arguably personally pro-choice, but he certainly came out with a pro-life stance in this election, mm -hmm. right? right. Um, can they nominate somebody who is in favor of same-sex marriage? Um, that's already law of the land, right? So maybe that's a, a less of a salient issue. So maybe um, maybe evangelicals forgive them for that, right? But I mean, which which issues could be violated, right? Um, because those are, those are the kind of moral issues that drew evangelicals in. That's what kind of why the Jerry Falwells and the Pat Robertson said we need to get into a political party, we need to get into the process, and we need to to push this in a particular direction, right? So I think that's the question, and we don't really know the answer to that until Republicans try it, right? Um, but I, when I when I do teach about American politics in my classes, I often talk about you know two groups, um, both of whom we've mentioned today: evangelicals and African Americans, right? I think they're both mm -hmm. groups that get taken for granted by the party, um, and you basically you sort of toss them a sop, right? Like here's what there's the issue. We're going to say some things, nice things about your issue. We have no real incentive to actually change this because what we mostly want to do is keep you mad at the other guys and make mm -hmm. sure you turn out, right? Um, and it's important that we, we do that, but it's not really important that we solve the problems, right, um, that got you in in the first place. And so, yeah, I don't know. Like I think what, what could they do to violate that would I think you hit the nail on the head with, with, with abortion. I th uh, if the Republicans ever nominated a candidate that was essentially blasé or even nominally pro-choice and evangelicals still lined up behind the Republican Party candidate, then you know that they stand for nothing. There's just there's nothing there because there is nothing holding them other than affiliation with a part with a partisan. Mm -hmm. partisan well, and this is the danger of getting involved in party politics, right? Is you you come in because of certain issues, but then you start identifying with the group, right? right. And then and then that group shapes you. And there's still ways you could justify. I mean, like the oh, well, I'm voting for this pro-choice person because they're less radical than the other. Okay, that's fine. But but at some level, are you really going to advance the cause at all? Right? And the no. answer is not really. Right? So, and and I think it's it's you know there's a real argument to be had of like, has it done anything for the evangelicals? Maybe. Right? At the edges. Um, but you know. That's it's actually an open question, right? And I think the same thing for African Americans with their deep loyalty to the Democratic Party. Like, has this really advanced their cause? And I think, mm -hmm. again, I think that's really debatable, right? I think what happens is you get taken for granted, and then they just find ways. How do we manipulate you to keep you voting for us? And then we go out and do the real work of politics, which is winning the people who actually go, you know, switch their votes. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, and in particular, I mean, just a, a, in, in terms of. Uh, sort of the, going back to the chicken and egg, I think. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks yeah. so much. Chicken omelet. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a little paprika in there. The rooster is currently eating the chicken omelet. Right. Oh, oh, that's that's oh, really so dark, dark. Branson. <laughs> 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 
this is my rooster is very disturbed. This is putting the shock in the election shock. <laughs> so I apologize. Hey, it is our 50th I apologize episode, to our guys. vegan That's listeners. True. That's true. Sorry, vegan listeners. Um, no, I think you know part of. And, 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 this, and this goes back to like 2015. You know, there were a lot of evangelicals who were at the time at least somewhat worried about, tr- um, about, about, about Trump. Yeah. But, the, yeah. but the difference is, and I think even back then, there was polls that showed there was a deep divide and difference between evangelical leaders and evangelical voters. Mm-hmm. Right? So basically right. regular right. evangelicals were much more sympathetic to, um, to, you know, to, to candidate Trump. Yep. Um, than were evangelical leaders, and so mm-hmm. I think even mm-hmm. that in itself sort of speaks to you know that there is that there is this deep disconnect between uh, you know sort of the values of evangelicalism, right? This right. you know this uh, you know theologically conservative um, movement, and there is a difference between, of course, theological and political conservatism. Um, but you know there that there are deep tensions there between that and and the things that President Trump said, and what evangelical voters themselves actually are are willing to put up with, and I think the data that Christianity Today just puts out, obviously, is just focused on voters. It doesn't really mm-hmm. distinguish between mm-hmm. leadership and right. the voters. And so what we're seeing is... But probably captures voters more than leadership does. Right, absolutely. Oh, oh yeah. Sure. It's going to be way more yep. than yep. voters. So, so essentially what we're seeing, though, I think, is, 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 is essentially in this, in this new data, sort of a continuation of that. And so in, that, mm-hmm. and so in mm-hmm. the one sense, we can sort of say, well, maybe there are key issues that would drive evangelicals away. Maybe abortion, things like that. Um, and so maybe we can sort of say that there's this solid right. core, although the problem is, and this is the, and this is sort of the issue for this data, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the data sort of indicates, at least in how people are responding, that um, a, you know, that that sort of indicates that that leadership doesn't matter that much because leadership was telling you know evangelicals essentially, you know, vote for essentially anyone but Trump, you know, <laughs> vote for Ted Cruz, vote for Rubio, vote for Kasich, right? right? You know, these right. are these are the people that they were touting. Um, but then, in addition to that, right, that that really hasn't changed, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that essentially white evangelicals, um, you know, essentially didn't care what leadership told them and voted for Trump anyway. And now that he's in office, white evangelicals continue to be much quicker to support and much more likely to not be disturbed by mm-hmm. the disturbing things that Trump says. And furthermore, let him be an opinion leader for the thi- for their opinion formation. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you know, so I think. And I agree to some, yeah, and I and I and I definitely agree that parties are kind of at the core of all of this, right? I mean, essentially, mm-hmm. and, and you know, political scientists have seen this increasingly, right? That parties shape, uh, you know, people's political identities at, yeah. at a really deep level. Um, it sort of it sort of comes down to this. I mean, one of the things that I often talk about in class, and one of the things I think is very interesting is usually, if you ask children if uh, if they have a part- partisan ID. Um, and you, they will start to say that they identify as a Republican or a Democrat around somewhere, you know, basically somewhere between like nine and twelve or thirteen years old, right? So, relatively young, right? Right when they're sort of, you know, just just right. starting to become mm-hmm. a little bit more aware. And the thing is, if you start asking them about issues, they won't become aware of particular issues until they're in their late teens. And so, essentially, right. what that means then is that throughout your early development, that party identification is going to shape the way that you approach basic issues. You're just right. rooting for a team. You're just rooting right. for a team, exactly. And so, you yeah. know, you basically come up yeah. as I am a Republican. Oh, and then as you get older, you know, you're 17, 18, or whatever, you're like, oh, what do the Republicans think about whatever immigration mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. Um, you know, national security or whatever? Um, and you essentially adopt those opinions as your yeah. own. And then from there, uh, the rest of the data essentially suggests that and, they, and of course there you know this is 
general, there's lots of exceptions, sure. right? But then for a lot of folks, um, they actually really don't change their party ID unless there's some sort of significant life event, right? Right. So essentially, a significant life event might be something like you marry somebody um, who has very different political views than you, um, or uh, which is increasingly rare. <laughs> <laughs> right. But um, yep. but despite that, right? So if you have a significant life event that switches you around, people are a little more squishy sometimes when they're in college, right? They might mm -hmm. right. go one way or the other, but usually sort of the normal course for most people is you just sort of adopt those views and that's the way you are for the rest of your life. And if you do happen to have a significant life event where you change, essentially you adopt those views and you just follow that party for the rest of your life. So it's basically, even if you might switch once, you essentially then eventually adopt most of the views of that party and pretty much stick with them. So, you know, so a lot of that is to say it's very easy in American politics to sort of get swept up and yeah. sucked into uh, this, this, um, this sort of, yeah, this sort of partisanship that then shapes who you are. And what's disturbing, I think, is that evangelicals often want to position themselves as, you know, sort of the advertising is we're moral, we sit above these things. We want mm -hmm. to, in many mm -hmm. ways, even evangelicals want to at times say we are going to sit in judgment of the culture and of, you know, the American people in general. We're going to have sort of a missional call to people to mm -hmm. say we want to mm -hmm. restore morality. And right. what this data suggests is that all of that um, really is kind of smoke. Um, because mm -hmm. essentially they're just right. as swept up in the, you know, uh, you know, the a, at best amoral mm -hmm. um, issues. And uh, they're just as quick to just, you know, basically justify uh, immoral candidates and immoral uh, practices and policies um, in support of the, the mm -hmm. you know, their par party identification. I'll just make so three quick comments on that. I mean, one is, I think, the th I mean, I think, first of all, it's basically right. Um, I think it's important to note that's not how it started, right? And I think that and this is where you get that, that power of parties. And I do think people like Falwell, even though I have concerns about Falwell, right? They got in with yeah. good intent. You have they concerns said, about Falwell? I have concerns <laughs> about Falwell. I can't Falwell. imagine I what can't you imagine mean. why I do, but we're not going to get followed that rabbit trail or that chicken and egg or whatever it is. We're not going to chase um, that. Was we're not chasing that chicken. Anyway, um, but, you know, I think they started off with good intentions, saying, like, look, yeah. the country's sliding on certain issues. We should get in. Um, here, this party will be a, a more useful vehicle. They're closer to us on certain issues, or maybe there's more opportunities there, right? And so they get in and they do that. Um, and I think this is where it goes, right? I mean, like when you get in with it on particular issues, um, eventually you become part of the team. You have to work together as a team. You have to make sacrifices for the team. And eventually your issues get swept up as one of the kind of laundry list, and maybe right. they fall down on the list of priorities, which is, I think, what we're seeing happening. Um, and you don't maybe forget totally why you got in, but you forget that as like the really important thing and it just becomes one of the things right and and you start losing that that kind of um distinctiveness so i think all, that's all of a sudden you're pat robertson arguing that what america really needs to be concerned about is a hundred billion dollars of arms sales to saudi arabia right 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 or right. you're you know you, you're good with assassinating leaders and so forth right yeah. so um i think the, the other thing i would just point out here too is um you know, none of this precludes that there are obviously individual evangelicals who are right. driven by moral issues, right? Yep. And the data Absolutely. certainly allows for that. And so, if you know, if yep. you're one of those listeners, right? I mean, like, we're not we're not sort of ruling out that that is out there. We know that's out there. Right. Mm -hmm. um, what we're saying is that's not the typical, right? That's not the 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 norm right. among evangelicals. Um, even they, if it is a norm amongst our listeners, even if it is, and it may be the norm amongst our listeners who are no doubt a little more deeply thoughtful, right. um, because that's the kind of you know that's hopefully, the kind of group we've drawn. All of our, all right? of our children, are we love average. you all. That's they right. are all of yeah. average. And hopefully, all Minnesota. of our good Bethel Bethel work yes, here is, yes, is, is, yes. Is, is, right. is is paying off. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, in so, all seriousness, um, I, can I if I can jump in on yeah. that? And this is something. This is a point that has been rattling around in my head now for uh, for a little while, but. Um, one of our former colleagues, Christian Collins, when um, introduced me to 
a bunch of readings on political theology. Mm -hmm. Political mm -hmm. theology wasn't something I read a great deal of until I came to Bethel. Right. So I'm latecomer to this whole conversation, but it seems to me that in comparison to other Protestant Christian traditions, and certainly in comparison to Catholicism, but in, mm -hmm. in comparison to other Christian traditions, what evangelicalism really lacks is political theology. Mm -hmm. um, because the way, because of the history of evangelicalism, because of the way that it started, because of its central tenets were um, the Lord Jesus is returning and soon, right? Um, right. And that um, our goal is to be as moral and and, mm -hmm. and, and pietist as possible until uh, Jesus returns, and to prepare ourselves and to save other people's souls along the way. Mm -hmm. There really never was a defined under, uh, theory for how to engage in the state. Now, yeah. Catholicism yeah. has a very defined theory right. for how to engage right. in the state, and I would argue even the, the, the traditions like like Reformed and, and Lutheranism, right. for sure. mm -hmm. um, uh, all, and even Anabaptism also have a way for engaging the state. Yeah. Now, for Anabaptism, yeah. it's negation, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. for the others, mm -hmm. there's like a, there's a defined understanding of what the state is, what yeah. it's designed to do, and how we engage in it. Mm -hmm. Evangelicals never had that. And that worked just fine when their default position was, let's stay above politics. Right. Which yeah. it was for most of the last century. Right. But for most of the last 30 years, 40, 50 years, it has been increasingly engagist. And evangelicals, because they don't have that theory, because they don't have an understanding of, here's the, what the state is designed to do, here's what we designed right. to do in relation to the state, here's when we opt in, here's when yep. we opt out, yep. they, I think that has led them to be much more easily captured Mm -hmm. By the mm -hmm. by, the seduction of the power of the state. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of the line at the beginning of Mark Knowles' um, 1994 book, um, "Scandal of the Evangelical Mind," right? In which he says, you know, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of an evangelical mind, right? And he's not meaning to be insulting, right? But I mean, he was teaching at Wheaton at the time, right? And you know, he's mm -hmm. he's at the heart of this, but he's saying we haven't thought through issues as deeply as a lot of other parts of the Christian tradition, right? And that is a a real shortcoming. I will say. Um, I think this party problem is big, though, and I think it's it's swept up not only evangelicals, right, but also some of the other Christian groups we just mentioned, right, mm -hmm. um, both on the right and left, right. I mean, some of them some of them got into the Republican Party, some of them got into the Democratic Party, right. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. that you know we've also seen this on the left with sort of liberal Christian groups getting um, or more liberal theologically getting into the Democratic Party because they cared about issues like you know reaching out to the poor and caring for the poor, mm -hmm. and getting swept up with a host of issues that are also not consistent with the Christian faith. Um, and that's been a huge problem. And they've they've just sort of sold out because, like, well, that's what the party says. So, you know, yeah, we're going to come down in favor of all these things. Like, well, actually, that's inconsistent with your faith. Oh, well. <laughs> right. Um, mm -hmm. And they just sort of set that to the side. Right. Um, so I I do think that is an evangelical problem. I think it is. It, you're right to point to that. Um, but I do think the, the party influence is so powerful that it has even swept up, you know, groups that do have more well-defined traditions. So it's it's an evangelical problem, but maybe not only an evangelical problem. Like, yeah. I think others are also in this danger. Yeah, I was just gonna say in terms of, and I think I think you're absolutely right in terms of you know like pure evangelicalism. I think a lot of evangelical thought, though, oftentimes has been defined in terms of Reformed and Lutheran and things like right. that. I mean, mm. evangelicals will sort of scoop up right. um, other folks and sort of say, oh well, you know, we like this aspect of yep. Yep. whoever. You know, we like C.S. Lewis. Oh, he's an Anglican. Exactly. Oh, well, <laughs> oh fine. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, um, and I think in some ways that sort of. Also, though, goes back to to and in some ways it sort of it pushes against Mark Knoll to some degree because mm -hmm. it says mm -hmm. there are elements of evangelicalism, at least thoughtful evangelicalism, that will sort of say, oh yeah, we should take, uh, you know, yeah, somebody like C.S. Lewis or Adrian right. Kuiper right. or whoever, right, seriously, um, and. Um, 
but then because there's so many different elements, um, it becomes hard to discern like, well, which one is the one I ought to follow? <laughs> right. Like, should I follow St. Right. Louis on this? Well, should I follow Luther on this? Should I, you know, and so yeah. you sort of become, yeah. it, it becomes much easier than in some ways going back to sort of the self-justification to justify whatever position you want to be. Well, right. Luther right. said X, you know, right. Luther said mm -hmm. that you should be God's hangman. Right. So, you know, I guess, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be Trump's officer and be God, you know, right. be the hangman. Right. Um, oh, well, that's not so great. Well, I'm going to switch my view now and <laughs> You know right. something else, like, you know. Yep. So, and now um, we're back to that. Just whatever's yeah, the party, party's, party's telling you what to do, exactly. and then party's telling you what you do, and, and then you, you sort find of, the theology that works. Right, right. exactly. And I think that's sort of the yeah. dangers. It's not is in some ways there is theology out there, right. um, which could even be called evangelical theology, um, but it, it it's often applied in such a sometimes I think in such an ad hoc yep. ways yep. Uh, that it that it it's not the or theology that's post -hoc controlling way. or post hoc yeah post hoc right. way. It's yeah. not it's not controlling, and I think that's the real problem that a lot of this data is showing right that it's not yep. theology that's controlling it's uh um yeah it's it's other factors it's the party it's um political mm -hmm. considerations mm -hmm. and expediency mm -hmm. well guys this is going to be a long meal <laughs> it is. We, <laughs> made it, we made it through our first course <laughs> we can, i think we can make the last two real short um, um i'll just make a quick make comment it, make a quick comment and yeah. then i'll make a quick comment and then we'll wrap yeah um, because I think we've really been talking about some of the issues in, in some ways that I was going to address. Um, and I mean, I think one of the things that we just, as we were talking about this podcast and what to cover, I think the, you know, the issue to me that popped to mind is just how, how little principle matters in politics more generally, right? Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about the problem of, you know, does principle drive a particular group of voters that's near and dear to us, right? As people who all kind of come from evangelical traditions and are teaching at evangelical school. Um, and I think, um, you know, the question when you get to politics writ large is does politics does principle drive anyone right and when we look at our political mm -hmm. leaders mm -hmm. increasingly the answer seems to be no right and i don't think that's a critique of a party it's a critique of both parties and of the system right i mean um, what i'm seeing in in the system is that you know people are just you know they're doing whatever it takes to get the job done right mm -hmm. um, and so you know if you are the republicans and you want to confirm brett kavanaugh to give a, a particular polarizing example mm -hmm. right you do whatever it takes to do that um, maybe you call for an investigation, but you make it short, you make it limited, right? Um, and you probably already have your mind mostly made up before you hear the results. If you're the Democrats and you get a, a credible accusation against somebody, um, instead of bringing it out at a moment when it might have made a difference, you sit on it and use it as a political tool. Mm -hmm. um, a month and a half later, you bring it out, um, not, not necessarily to get this candidate not confirmed. You know a conservative judge is going to be confirmed. Republicans have a majority. Trump's the president. Um, so you try to make that person be hobbled, and you try to make the party look bad, and you try to use this for your political gains in the election, right? Um, when I look at this, I just don't see much, if anything, of principle in, in the way either party acts, right? It just seems to be all about what can I do to accomplish my political goals, um, whatever the political goals of the moment are. Sometimes they're very short-sighted. Um, I think both of those strategies I've just outlined um, have a lot of short-sightedness in them. But um, that's, you know, that's the kind of issues we see. And you know, I, I actually wrote a short piece for um, an online journal called Public Discourse back during the 2016 election, mm -hmm. which I touched on this and said, look, I mean, do we, do we have any principles? Is there anything <laughs> where we would say, you know, like, oh, I, I took this principle when it was to my right. convenience, and I'm not going to take it when it's to my inconvenience. And the answer for both parties seems to be essentially no, right? Um, we are very happy to talk out of both sides of our mouth um, if it, what's convenient today um, was what was inconvenient last time, right? Yep. And so, you know, it's um, <laughs> you know, it's it's really kind of disturbing. But that's sort of where I see things going, um, and where thi or at least where things are right now. And I don't know if we keep going down that path or if there's any way to pull out of it. But 
anyway, that's my short and dark take on American politics right now. Well, un- unfortunately, I, I see a lot of resonance with that. I, uh, I think there's a lot that I agree with in what you just said, that um, it does seem like, and I'm not sure that this is unique to this era, but it seems exacerbated by this era, right. that we have political leaders on both sides who are very much committed to power for power's sake. Yep. And mm-hmm. um, even though I disagree with some of them, mm-hmm. uh, the more principled actors in our federal po- political system are really shunted to the sides, yep. right? Yep. Um, I have very little I agree with, with with Rand Paul. right? But I will acknowledge that he's a principled political actor mm-hmm. in the sense mm-hmm. that right. he is much more driven by his principles and regularly acts and votes on his principles. Yep. Than, than most other Republicans. Um, and likewise with the Democrats, some of the far left Democrats, the ones mm-hmm. I agree with the least, and yet they also seem to vote right. most frequently on their principles. Mm-hmm. Right. I think <laughs> we sometimes we see this, I, my, my only hope, I guess I'll say, is that even yet some of the most brazen attempts at um, power grabbing do seem to still backfire. Right. Not all the time. Mm-hmm. There are some limits. Not all the time, but I'm, I'm heartened by the generally um, negative, bemused to negative reaction that Elizabeth Warren uh, warranted after releasing a DNA <laughs> test uh, right, right. attempting to establish her bona fides as a member of a First Nations group within the United States. Right. right. I don't want to go into the whole story of that, but clearly no. this is entirely designed to refute a specious claim made by the president and even a racist claim made by the president against her heritage, one that she's that she herself has claimed. Right. And this kind of, you know, identity or searching for an identity, fishing for an identity sort of Mm -hmm. thing is is exactly in line with what you're talking about. And I'm Mm -hmm. sort of heartened to see that we've, you know, largely that's been largely met with a shrug and a smirk. Um, I guess I would just say that and, and I'll make my comment quick here, too. Th- this raw pursuit of power extends to the international realm. It right. probably is more right. typical in the international realm. Yeah. And yeah. if you're following the news, you know that um, it seems incredibly likely, and now it's being uh, alleged by the Turkish government, that a um, Saudi journalist who was a, an American resident living mm-hmm. in the United States um, who had written many stories critical of the Saudi regime, uh, who was visiting the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, to get marriage papers um, mm-hmm. f- to, for his upcoming nuptials, was apprehended by a Saudi um, hit team, was killed inside the embassy. Now, just right. a little bit of artifact of international politics here. This uh, any country's embassy is part of their ho- is part of their native territory. So, right. because right. he was inside the Saudi embassy, he was on Saudi ground, even though he was inside Istanbul, Turkey. Right. Um, but was in all likelihood killed, dismembered, um, and disposed of. Um, and this is uh, the reactions to this have largely been really about the pursuit of power, yep. um, not the condemnation of the killing of a journalist, mm-hmm. but about the upcoming hundred billion dollar arms deal between the United States and Saudi Arabia, right. about um, whether this is ha- whether this has happened or not, whether it's true or not, and and how we react to the Saudi regime. And in many ways, the international community of journalists have been, have taken a far more principled stand mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. the American government has um, in the protection of one of its residents. So right. I, don't need, I don't think I want to say a whole lot more than that, but um, I'll just note that there was a conference 
and that the Saudis were organizing. They were putting a lot of effort and a lot of money into. Uh, it was supposed to begin today, and a lot of the prominent speakers, celebrities, mm-hmm. into public intellectuals, in the media have all pulled out and declined to go, but uh, the crown prince, ju- uh, just as we're podcasting it right now, uh-huh. just took the stage in a surprise move. He wasn't supposed to take the stage, and he showed up and received a standing ovation from the people who were there. Yep. So this is about power and image and, and the raw mm-hmm. acquisition of influence. Yep. And this was the yep. silencing of a journalist who was critical of the, of the Saudi monarchy. Yep. So uh, did, did I outdark you? Yeah, maybe. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> So um, it's a tough time right now. And we want, yeah, I want to keep, I want to keep talking about these mm-hmm. things. Um, I've, uh, um, I, I appreciate the conversation here, gentlemen, uh, before we sign off, anything, anything you want to add towards at the end here? Yeah. Mitch, uh, you look like you were about to you say something. Ready to talk. <laughs> no, no, I, I was just, I was, uh, I, I, no, I, I think, I think we should probably wrap up, but, um, I mean, just, just, just to say that, I mean, on the one hand, when we look at this sort of like raw pursuit of power, um, I think on the one hand, you know, it's sort of there's sort of this temptation to to despair to say like mm-hmm. things are somehow mm-hmm. worse than they uh, ever have been, and I don't think that's true. I think mm-hmm. in many cases, um, you know, the raw pursuit of power is sort of the default in some ways. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, this mm-hmm. can go back to you know, as as Andy is often likes to think about as he's teaching humanities. I mean, yep. you know, this yep. this goes back to th- you know Thucydides and the Peloponnesian Machiavelli. War, and we can think about Machiavelli, right? There's right. all these uh, Hobbes, you know, there's yep. all these all yep. these um, moments in history where it's pretty clear that you know power right. for power's sake yep. um, is, yep. is is a driving motive. I mean you can also look at a lot of Shakespeare plays. I mean, you know, oh, yeah, uh, sure. you know this is this is a driving motive for, for human behavior is, mm-hmm. is trying to seek mm-hmm. power and oftentimes, yep. you know, just for the sake of having power. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think and I think that's it's it's dark, but we sort of expect that. And I think right. where we are disappointed, and I think sort of the disappointment that we have is there are certain people or actors that we hope rise above that, right. and uh, you know who and who have ex- essentially at some point at least said that that's their their mission, right? I mean, if we think about right. the United States right. government, for example, I mean we're f- we're supposed to be a nation that's founded not so much on a people or on uh, you know, or on you know any kind of race or nationality right. or anything like that. We're founded on an idea. We're founded on a series of propositions in our founding documents that are essentially supposed to be principles that help us rise above um, this, this sort of raw pursuit of power. Mm-hmm. And so when we see our national government not doing that, um, you know, essentially bowing to, uh, you know, obvious violations of our core principles, um, then that's disturbing. And right. in the same way, you know, when we look at evangelicals who say that they yep. are supposed to be somebody who sits above um, and, you know, mm-hmm. basically tries to mm-hmm. guide culture in a moral way, you know, that's that's disturbing. Um, yep. And, uh, you know, and the same thing with our politicians. You know, we want leaders who are at, who are just that, who are actually leaders. And if they aren't right. willing to articulate principles, um, then, you know, it's hard to say who who's going to do that, what role, who's going to fill that role. So I think that's, that's what's disturbing. What's disturbing is not so much power, you know, that people right. are pursuing power, that that we expect. Um, what's disturbing is, is, you know, seeing institutions and, uh, you know, and, and groups that, that, that ought to be doing more than that, 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 mm-hmm. that aren't. And I'll just emphasize one particular point with that. I mean, I was just talking yesterday in, you know, I was giving a large group lecture in my humanities class and um, we were talking about St. Augustine, right? And Augustine talks about, I mean, like engaging well with the politics of the, the kind of earthly city you're in. But you have to always remember for St. Augustine, right, that you are a citizen not of the earthly city, but of the heavenly city. Um, so yes, seek the peace of the earthly city, mm-hmm. right? But 
but you do that to point people to the heavenly peace and and you have to always you know make sure you don't start confusing those two right mm. augustine's worried about that he says you know we have a tendency to do exactly what we've been talking about right to get so focused on seeking right. these kind of limited earthly goods and they are always flawed and they're always partial right because this is a sinful fallen world um, and lose track of what we're really supposed to be about, which is heavenly good, uh, and bringing people into true peace, which is that right relationship with God, right? And so um, he's not saying don't engage in politics, Christians, but he's saying be really careful that when you do that, um, you keep you know, kind of the aim in mind. And I think what we've been touching on with that, sort of thinking about that Christianity Today um, piece, is that you know I think as Christians we've lost sight of that um, in, in too many instances in this country. Um, and that is disturbing because you're right. The nature of politics, you know, as power, I mean, that goes way, way back. Um, but we as Christians do have a higher calling, and we need to make sure we're we're sticking to that. Well, gentlemen, uh, let's go pursue that higher calling. Let's We've got some it. teaching to do. We've got some uh, some uh, mentoring to do, some advising to do, and uh, we need to get on to do that. So thank you, uh, colleagues, for joining me here, and thank you, listeners, for uh, checking in with us. As always, you can reach out to us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. With the midterms coming up, we'll be back in your feed next week. But until then, go Royals. (laughs) 